Well, again, welcome to Northview. And we are in a series called Down to Earth. Look at your neighbor and say, Down to Earth. We are taking a deeper look, a closer look at uh, this idea that the Son of God, God himself, uh, came to earth and took on human flesh and lived like us also that he could extend an invitation for you and I to live like him, that he showed up to endure a vicious death, also that you and I could experience a victorious life. The coming of Christ is it's remarkable and it is profound and it's a much bigger idea than most people realize. And maybe you've been a Christian for years, maybe just maybe there's something about this doctrine, this theology of Christ coming to earth uh, that is bigger and more informative uh, that you realize, and maybe it would shape your understanding of his desire moving forward in your life. And so we are establishing this idea that our God is not just a powerful God, he's not just a purposeful God, he's a personal God, he's down to earth, and he wants to have a relationship uh, with every single one of us. And no, today's message uh, is going to be a little different. In fact, it could be a train wreck. I just got to tell you right out the gate. I don't know how well this will go. I find that I, I have a hard time uh, with certain categories. I found this to be the case uh, back in high school. You know, there's always this assumption that you couldn't be athletic and academic. If you were a jock, you had to be a dumb jock, right? You couldn't be athletic or academic or you couldn't be athletic and artistic. And I always thought that was nonsense. Why can't you love sports, enjoy a good book and appreciate art? Why can't you uh, appreciate all the things? And I say that because uh, when it comes to this, I have often been asked the question, hey, are you a preacher or a teacher? And I'm always like, yes. Uh, I, I think both. I think sometimes I get up here and I'm ready to spaz out. And I have some of you wondering how much caffeine has this guy had? He's really excited and hyper about what he's talking about because I think there's so much to God that deserves a celebration. And sometimes I, I love to lean into the creativity and hey, let's, let's have a prop or an illustration. Let's have fun with the message. But then other times I, I just like to geek out on some things and hopefully you appreciate variety because I would get bored becoming a one trick pony. And uh, today's message is gonna be a little different. And I gotta tell you, what I'm doing in this message, I've actually have never done in a single sermon in my entire career. So again, this is new for all of us. Uh, but we are going to run the gauntlet of some topics and conversations today. Uh, we are going to touch on relativism, postmodernism, feminism, veganism, uh, gender theory, and anima, uh, animality. We'll, we'll just touch on all of them. Anyone feel uncomfortable yet? Uh, good news is I have your attention and you will be relieved to know that next week Pastor Steve will be preaching. So just take a deep breath. If anything, uh, you'll be blessed by him next weekend. But the reason for this is, uh, to be honest with you, I don't actually wanna talk about any of this. Have you ever found that you now live in times where you are a part of conversations, having to address certain things, maybe with your kids or a coworker, and you find yourself in dialogue on things that you're like, I never thought I would be talking about these things. And quite honestly, I don't really want to do so. But we live in a world where these things have come right to our doorstep. And this is the world that we live in. And I think as a community of faith, we can, we can lean in 
in a way that is honoring to one another and honoring to God, and we can lean in with gentleness and respect for everybody, but say, hey, does God's word have anything to say about the conversation at large within our world? And what I love about scripture is uh, it is living, it is active, it is relevant, and God is still wise and still informing his children, amen? And I think this is important. Peter said this once. He said, hey, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason. Someone say reason. That, that there's a logic, there's a, a reasoning to what we believe. And he says, hey, be ready to give the reason for the hope that you have. But, and this is key, this is so big. Do this with gentleness and respect. And I, I think sometimes we gotta be careful because maybe just maybe our approach to conversations is poorly representing God. And maybe just, maybe it's even harming and hurting those around us. And how can we lean in to conversation that we all need to think about in a way that is honoring to God and respectful uh, to those around us? Because you and I are tasked with this really tricky challenge where we are trying to live in relationship with God while simultaneously live in relationship with so many people who span the spectrum on so many different topics. And how do we do this how do we do this well? And I say that because what we're talking about in this series is really at the center of a lot of these conversations. A lot of people don't even realize it. And it's the doctrine of the incarnation. That's what we're talking about in this series, that God took on human flesh and became like one of us. And most people don't realize that so much of the conversation and the shifting landscape within our society uh, is tampering with this belief of ours, and this is at the center of so many conversations and is learning to understand this in a way that informs our reasoning and our logic as well as our worldview and approach to situations. And this is something that I think is something I'm probably always going to say from this platform, and I'm gonna remind us as a church often, that Christianity is not a shallow faith. This is not some pacifist approach to you know, just getting through life without having to think critically. No, you can't check your brain at the door. This requires your intellectual fervor and your mental engagement. And it's learning to lean in and say, hey, God wants me to be a person of sound mind despite living in a world full of noise and at times chaos and confusion. And when John writes his gospel, he immediately engages the philosophy and the ideology of the day. And he says it this way, he says, in the beginning was the word. Someone say the word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He goes on to say, he was with God in the beginning and going on through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been seen. And John is repetitive on purpose and he repeats three things a few times. He repeats the word, he repeats this idea of the beginning, and he repeats this idea of things being made. He wants us to know that Jesus is the word, that he has existed from the beginning, and all that we know and see and experience was made and created by God. And where John says the word, the original term there was logos. This was a philosophical term. And what does it mean? Logic and reasoning. 
So what we established last week, and if you weren't here, is John comes right out the gate, right off the bat in his letter, and he says, hey, just so we're all on the same page, Jesus is the source of logic and reasoning. He's the source of truth and understanding. And it's when you understand that, that you find a, a greater ability to discern and develop wisdom and navigate the world that we live in. Jesus is the source of logic and reasoning. And we live in times where uh, logic and reasoning is being tampered with daily. And what we said last weekend is those who don't make room for Christ make room for chaos. When you do away with logic and reasoning, when you do away with understanding and truth, what that does is it creates a wobbly life and it creates a wobbly family and a wobbly marriage and a wobbly community and society. And it's learning to appreciate and understand that logic, reasoning, truth, wisdom is critical to our well-being. And there's a source. And that source is Jesus Christ. That's John's argument. And John goes to give more commentary and more clarity around this idea of Jesus being brilliant, Jesus being uh, set apart, and Jesus ushering into the world a new way of thinking and a new way of, of approaching life. And he says this, he says, the word became flesh, that's the doctrine of the incarnation, and made his dwelling among us. Now wave at me if you have the message version of the Bible. Anyone got the message version? It's an awesome paraphrase of scripture. And what I love about the message version where it says he made his dwelling among us, the message version says he moved into the neighborhood. I think that's so great that he came to be among us also that he can relate to us and rescue us. That's a pretty profound idea. He says, we have seen his glory, that's basically what we just sang about. Hey, I, I've witnessed it, that's what John is saying. He's saying, I've witnessed his goodness and I've witnessed his purpose and I've witnessed his agenda and his teachings and his miracles. I've witnessed who he is as a person. This God is amazing. And he says, the only way I can explain it is when I looked at Jesus, I just couldn't ignore his glory. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the Father, here's a big statement, full of grace and truth. That's a big idea. He goes on to say, John testified. Now he's talking about John the Baptist here, and he's giving some commentary about what's happening. John testified concerning him, talking about Jesus. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. And that he's, he's saying, listen, I, John is having this epiphany of his own where he's discovering this God is all-encompassing. He, he has my back, he walks beside me, but he's gone ahead of me. And anyone thankful for the all-encompassing grace and goodness and mercy and faithfulness of our God? He has your back and he's gone before you is what he's saying. He says, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace. This is not to say exchanging grace, it is to say grace upon grace, that when you follow Christ and you develop a relationship with God, uh, you discover there is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. You cannot exhaust God's grace, that your sin, as impressive as you may think it is, is no match for God's grace. It's overwhelming how much he loves us. He goes on to say it's already been given, but goes, going further, he says, for the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came through 
Jesus Christ. Now watch how he ends this. He says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father. He has made him known. And so what he's saying is like, guys, you gotta understand what's happening here. So God in an act of grace imparted wisdom through Moses to his people through what is known as the law. And through the law came the standard of God, the standard of righteousness and the standard of holiness. And what did the law accomplish? It exposed our sin. People began, you looked at the standard of God and immediately the conclusion was, well, well, who can live at that standard? Who can accomplish or achieve that level of holiness or righteousness? No one. We all fall short. And this is an act of grace that God loves us enough to raise awareness and make us mindful of our sinful, broken condition. He says, okay, that was an act of grace, but Jesus showed up grace upon grace that you just don't have to live with despair and hopelessness knowing that you can never achieve the standard of God. No, because of Christ, you and I have imputed righteousness. In other words, when God looks at you and God looks at me, he sees Jesus because you and I have surrendered our life to him. It's, it's a really big idea, and I, and I know it's super heady, but this is the stuff that serves us well if we're gonna follow Christ and, and get the most out of the life Jesus died to give us. And in this, John lays out two principles, right? He says he came full of grace and truth. And I recently read this article that's talking about this plane crash that landed in the jungle and there are a few survivors and most of the survivors decided, hey, let's wait it out. Someone will come and rescue us. But one young girl said, no, I, I've got to try to find my way out of this. And so she you know, ventured off on her own and eventually she makes her way to this small village and she is rescued. And when all said and done, she's actually the only one to survive. Those who waited didn't make it. And they asked her, hey, how did you find your way out? And she said, my dad always told me two things. Downhill leads to water and water leads to people. Downhill leads to water and water leads to people. And it was those two principles that led me out of the jungle into this village. And I just wonder if in a similar fashion, our heavenly father gives us these two principles, hey, truth and grace. And maybe just maybe if you and I can understand their implications in our life, we too can navigate uh, the jungle of our life and the complexity and the confusion and the, the trials and the inconvenience and all the uncertainty that comes uh, with living life as we know it. And I think what is problematic in this is you and I tend to be very binary in our thinking. And this is what makes us susceptible to so much polarization. And I think obviously we can poke fun and talk about all the examples of this in culture and in our society. But tragically, you can find this in the church. And you can find this in the church when it comes to this conversation. It says, Jesus came full of grace and truth. But what you find sometimes in Christian circles is you have the truth camp and you have the grace camp. And we tend to separate the two uh, and we devote ourselves to the one that we are most comfortable with. Does that make sense? And what scripture is saying is, yeah, uh, every time we do that, we miss the mark. And maybe a question that we should all consider as we jump into this is, which direction do you lean? Do you lean more towards truth 
Or do you lean more towards grace? And maybe just maybe through this conversation, uh, God will open your eyes to the fact that every single one of us might need to adjust or balance out our appreciation and application of grace and truth. Now, I I love creating distinctions. I I love creating clarity around what does this look like. And I would say this, truth without grace, well, that's heartless. And some of you, you've encountered this person who is just abrasive and rude and speaks their mind and thinks their job is to just tell everyone the truth and put everyone in their place. And there's no empathy and there's no self-awareness and it just seems mean and rude at times. Anyone know this person? Wave at me if you've ever encountered this. Chances are, if you've never encountered this person, you're that person. Like you're just running around giving everyone a piece of your mind. You should just know at times that's, that's so heartless. That's not what God has in mind. In addition to that, truth without grace, it's friendless. It's really hard to be in friendship with this type of person. It's really hard to be in friendship with someone who does not understand the fact that we're all imperfect and we all come up short and where there is no grace, the relationship suffers. In addition to that, truth without grace it's condemning. Now, Scripture draws the same distinction, that there's a big distinction between condemnation and conviction. Condemnation causes you to swell up in shame and run away from God. But conviction clothes you in grace and causes you to run into the arms of God. Condemnation says, hey, I've made a mistake, don't tell my dad. Where grace says, hey, I've made a mistake, please call my dad. It's a totally different approach. And truth without grace, it leads to condemnation. It fosters shame and all these feelings of self-loathing and lack of worth, and and that's not what God is after. But in addition to that, truth without grace, it leads to rebellion. And for all of us who are raising young kids, this is so critical. Rules without relationship lead to rebellion. This is essentially what is kind of happening through the law and through the Old Testament, there is this, this rules and these standards put in place. And what happens is, is that at times triggers, if there's not relationship in place, it triggers a rebellious spirit. A gum wrapper just fell out of my pocket. Sorry, I get preacher's breath after I do this. <laughs> Trying not to kill folks. But what happens is, is we create rebellious spirits in people when you and I just project rules upon rules without any emphasis on relationship. And truth without grace, it leads to rebellion. But on the flip side, grace without truth, well, folks, I would say it's spineless. What you have to understand is truth is the skeleton that grace hangs upon. And without the skeleton that grace hangs upon, well, then grace without truth, it's functionless. You have to ask yourself the question, what does this even accomplish? What's the function or the purpose? And anyone have kids who play with slime? That stuff just stresses me out. I'm OCD. I, I like things clean. And my kids love playing with slime. And what is funny to me is they have all these molds that they just create different molds and forms and they can squeeze it into anything. And ultimately that's, that's what happens with grace without truth. You can just force it into anything and it can just form to whatever you're trying to make it form to. But grace without truth, it's, it's functionless. In addition to that, grace without truth is confusing. 
I mean, it's sometimes comical to me, the individuals who are the most enthusiastic about grace, yet they act allergic to truth. And I'm always like, well, what's the point of grace if you don't accept the truth? If you don't embrace the truth that you and I are sinners in need of grace, why are you even excited about grace? Without truth, there's no need for grace. It gets confusing and you start to wonder, what does this accomplish and what's its role in our life? But here's the big one. Grace without truth, it leads to relativism. And folks, whether you've given any thought to this or not, this is the predominant thought within our world today. And this is gaining significant traction and momentum. This is what your kids are gonna like grow up thinking and being conditioned to think. Relativism is the predominant way of thinking within our world. And in short, relativism is the belief that there's no such thing as right or wrong. That truth is subjective and you can define truth according to your comfort and your preferences. And what this does is it positions all of us to experience a very bizarre world and to succumb to very bizarre logic. When you embrace a, a mentality that says there is no such thing as right and wrong, well, suddenly you're permitted to look upon atrocities such as the Holocaust and think, well, I don't know. Like if there's no such thing as right or wrong or morality or objective truth, well, I don't know. Who am I to say that was right or wrong? And this is, this is really problematic. And we live in times, and this is something that we all just are aware of, where we are becoming increasingly offended. You bump into this? We're all so easily offended. The world we live in is easily offended. And every situation turns into a victim's race. And whoever can establish themselves as the victim, they win and they get leverage in the situation. And so what that does is it is causing all of us, oh my goodness, to overthink every conversation, every interaction. It's like, okay, we're all walking a tightrope and we're all tiptoeing around landmines because we don't want to offend anybody. Anyone else, can you relate to that? It's just a super challenge. And here's the problem. I believe our sensitivity is eroding our integrity. We're getting to a point now where it's like, hey, I'm, I'm so afraid of hurting anyone's feeling about anything. Uh, now I'm, I'm withholding truth, which is another form of lying and falsehood. And so it's just learned to say, okay, God, what does this look like and how do you want us to navigate it? And, and I think when it comes to this conversation, there are really there are four categories of people. Uh, when it comes to this idea of truth and logic and reasoning and where does Jesus fit into it all. And chances are our church, as we meet this weekend, has people who represent all four categories of people. And that is where this part comes in. And this is something I've never done because I recognize uh, there's only so little time in the day. Not everybody has ample time to do a deep dive and research into the things that are shaping our culture and the things that are combating our faith. Uh, but I do, and I tend to geek out on that. And that stuff is uh, things that I enjoy even in my free time. And I think, you know, we have the series at the movies. I've thought about doing a series called at the library. And I'm just gonna sit up here and read things to you guys that you probably would never read on your own. 
but things that I think are helpful because you can put principles on a screen, but if you don't look at a situation like, hey, how does this actually play out? Give me a, a situation where this is the case. And I recently came across this book by a university professor, Abigail Favale. And she is a self-proclaimed uh, liberal progressive feminist who teaches gender theory within the university. And she first, she writes two books. Her first book is a memoir that was actually uh, her unconventional and very unexpected journey into conversion and embracing the faith in God. It's, it's this really interesting story. And her second book is called The Genesis of Gender. Now, I would show you a copy of the cover, but she has Adam and Eve in their birthday suits. But she, she talks about how for years, and I mean, this woman is, she's impressive. Her training, her background, she is in the inner circle and one of the leading voices within the conversation of feminism and gender theory. And she has all the credentials. And she talks about how she arrived at the place of being this astute professor within this field. And she talks about after years of, of teaching this content, her conscience started to, to speak up a little bit. And she says this, she says, one day I left class feeling defeated and unsure why. I had taught this text to undergraduates before many times with an untroubled conscience. In fact, I'd often felt good about exposing my students to heady and trendy theories about gender when they voiced newfound uncertainty and confusion, as they usually did, at the end of the course, I'd feel satisfied, as if my central task as a gender studies professor was to disrupt and unsettle their tidy and simplistic views, to expose them to irresolvable complexity. Now, that work of disorientation without any effort of reorientation, which is such a, a miss, began to unsettle me. She says, my conscience, after giving me reassuring high fives for the past decade, was now clearing her throat in the, back of my, in the back room of my mind and asking, so is any of this true? So she has this moment of like, hey, what am I doing here? What am I participating in? What do I actually think? What am I teaching? And so she decides, I'm gonna go talk to another professor. And there's this guy who was a colleague of hers, who was this wise professor who had this long tenure at the university, who was also a person of faith. And she says, I'm, I'm just gonna go have a conversation with him. And she says, within five minutes, I was in full-blown confession mode, disclosing the indictments of my conscience, not to a priest, but to a gray-bearded Quaker with a Gandalf vibe. I feel like I've been giving my students poison to drink, I said. For so many years, I'd been careless, careless with their minds and most disturbingly, careless with their souls. The professor listened quietly to me, as was his ways. He tends to speak few words, but those words are usually wise and rarely what you want to hear. He could have coddled me. He could have told me I'd done what I thought was right at the time and that I was being too hard on myself. Instead, in an Appalachian draw, he says, hey, you know that verse in the book of Matthew? The one that says, if anyone causes the little ones to stumble, it would be better to have him tie a millstone around his neck and drown in the sea. I've always thought it would be a good idea for us professors 
to have that tattooed on our arms. So she, she's in this conversation. She's like, okay, I gotta give some more thought to what I'm doing here. And she goes into what uh, most people would call a deconstruction type phase of deconstructing her, her route into this field. And in it, she starts understanding the critical role that postmodernism and relativism has played in her thinking. And if you're not familiar with postmodernism, it, again, is the predominant mindset and theory in our world today. And in her words, this is how she defines postmodernism. Postmodernism, to put it simply, is a worldview that sees reality in terms of narratives that are created by human beings rather than an order of objective truths that can be discovered by human beings. So again, this starts to run against the grain of what we as believers think because we believe that God created the universe and that the universe makes sense, that there are things that you look around creation, it's like oxygen, it makes sense. Gravity, it makes sense. Agriculture, it makes sense. The water cycle, it makes sense. These things are, are knowable. And her claim is, well, postmodernism would say that's, that's not the case. Rather than an order of objective truths that can be discovered by human beings, postmodernism reflects deep skepticism towards meta-narratives, collective explanatory narratives that give an overarching account of reality. Now watch this. Christianity or any established religion certainly counts as a meta-narrative, as does atheistic scientism. So she's saying, hey, this whole movement of postmodernism, it's not just an issue for Christianity. This is a massive issue for the field of science. In fact, what she would go on in her writings would to argue that this is an issue for a lot of fields and a lot of industries. Last week, we talked about this assumption that science, an enemy, uh, science is an enemy of the faith that science and Christianity are in opposition with one another, and that is not the case. Science is actually an ally. In fact, what she would say is science is in the same foxhole with Christianity in our current landscape and society when facing postmodernism. She says, postmodernism is equally skeptical of an enlightenment understanding of reality as it is of a Christian one. Postmodernists don't necessarily reject the existence of God, but they do reject the knowability of God and objective truth. Well, again, this flies against the grain of the doctrine of the incarnation because the doctrine of the incarnation says, no, God is knowable and God wants to be in relationship and God has revealed himself to us. Postmodernism says, no, God isn't knowable. And so it's just understanding if you're gonna live a life for Christ, uh, you are committing to living counterintuitive, countercultural, against the grain, swimming upstream for the rest of your life. That's why some of you, you're not a Christian. I'm not trying to pull one over on you. You should pump the brakes. Jesus was not a con artist. He was not a salesman. He wasn't trying to get people to make a quick yes. He would say, hey, think critically because I want you to give your life to this and just know that this will come with resistance. They say, hey, it's, God is not knowable, he goes on to say that postmodernists don't reject the, the existence of God, the knowability part. God is not a being who discloses himself to us through the created order and divine revelation. Rather, God is merely a projection of human desires, a story 
that we tell ourselves. And again, if you're going to be someone who actually takes your faith seriously, you have to understand what you believe and what culture is saying. Again, guys, I don't wanna preach any of this. I would rather preach a thousand other things today, um, but this is the conversation that we are bombarded with every single day. And my goodness, if you're above the age of 30 and you're a Christian, you're gonna make it. Good job, you're gonna cross the finish line. Chances are you're strong enough in your faith, you're gonna get it done. But your kids and your grandkids are going to live every single day combating these things that are constantly at war with what they believe and the faith that they've anchored themselves to in Jesus Christ. Because there's this category where some people are trying to remove and are focused on removing God. And that, that's super problematic because Scripture would say that not only is God the, the source of all logic and reasoning, Scripture says that Christ is the cornerstone. And in that time, what that means is you would take the biggest rock and you would lodge it in place and that, law, uh, that rock would create leverage and the anchor point for the rest of the foundation for the home. If you get rid of the cornerstone, what happens to the rest of the foundation? What happens to the home? It crumbles. And here's what you gotta find. There are five primary casualties to postmodernism. Truth, logic, reasoning, ethics, and morality. Those are the five casualties of postmodernism. And, and again, you, you can see this everywhere. And if we're not careful, we give ourselves over to things that create very wobbly, unstable, confusing, contradicting, and counterproductive things within our life. And she says, I realized that as I began to give myself over to this thinking, it then shaped the trajectory of my life, my worldview, and my career, to which she would eventually become a devout feminist who then would begin teaching gender theory. Now watch what she says here. She says, according to the gender paradigm, there is no creator. And so we are free to create ourselves. The body is an object with no intrinsic meaning. We give it whatever meaning we want using technology to undo what is perceived to be natural. We do not receive meaning from God or our bodies or the world. No, we impose it. What, what we take to be real is merely, hear the statement, a linguistic construct. Ergo, we should consciously wield language to conjure the reality that we want. And have you found that in our world, we are redefining so many fundamental things. This is why there's so much suspicion in the world. Because it's not that I don't hear what you're saying, I don't know what you mean by what you're saying. Because how I define that word and how you define that word is radically different. Have you ran into this? because we are playing with language all to create and form whatever reality we think we are able to do so. She says, to be free is to transgress limits continually to unfetter the will. And so she's talking about, okay, this is what I came to understand. This is what I came to teach. And, and I end with this, watch what she says. She says, I came to inhabit the gender paradigm through the gateway of feminist theory. Hear this next statement. 
My personal journey is something of a historical microcosm because our culture has entered the gender paradigm through the same door. She's saying, hey, I entered the gender paradigm through the door of feminist theory and our culture has entered the gender paradigm through the same door. Now hold that in context. She says, feminism and gender theory maintain strong familial ties. Aside from a contingent of gender critical feminists, contemporary feminism has made a comfortable home for itself within the gender paradigm and it polices its linguistic boundaries. Now watch how she brings this to a close. It is a sad paradox that a movement centered on the rights of women has led to this curious juncture where the very definition of a woman is under fierce dispute. How this happened is a strange story, rich in dramatic irony. Ultimately, ruinous. The gender paradigm is feminism's offspring. And it has proven, as we will see, to be an edible one. Now, I did not know what that word edible meant. In fact, I had to look it up and initially I was even saying it wrong because the word is spelled O-E-D-I-P-A-L. So I was saying Oedipal. Come to find out the O is silent. And what she means by, hey, it will bring to an Oedipal conclusion is Oedipus is a Greek God. What she says here is loaded. And Oedipus is the Greek God who kills his father also, he can have a relationship with his mother. And what she is arguing is she's saying, I didn't even realize what I was participating in. And what I'm realizing is feminism gave birth to this gender paradigm, which is now killing feminism. Also, it can have its own relationship with postmodernism. And her argument is when this is the case, Where's it gonna end? Uh, again, this is not just an issue for the, the Christian community. This creates problems in every sector of society. You will find this in the field of science. You will find this in the medical industry. You will find this in education. You will find this in the judicial system and law enforcement. When there is no truth and there is no morality and there are no ethics, things get wobbly. And some, and maybe you can relate and identify to being in this category are focused on removing Jesus. And some are aiming to redefine Jesus. The reason for that is some people realize, okay, you, you just, you can't get away from logic. You can't just dismiss it. If you dismiss logic, this whole thing unravels. So we have to make sense or we have to make this work. And so what happens is, is there's another camp of people and their focus is redefining Jesus. And I recently came across this research project at Marquette University. Marquette University uh, actually did a research project on the incarnation, the very thing that you and I are talking about. And I don't know if you read academic journals or articles. I know it's super geeky things. Um, but know that when a, a project is put together, there are, there are all kinds of pieces to the research project. There's a, there's a cover page and there's an acknowledgement page and there's a table of contents and there is even a bibliography to cite the sources and there is what is called an abstract page. 
So this research project makes up 367 pages in research. I, I printed the whole thing off, but I won't bore you with all of it. But I do wanna read to you the abstract. So you can see, hey, this is how they're trying to redefine Christ. This is how they're trying to take something that we believe and make it work with the narrative that is becoming the, the predominant idea. It says, in this exploratory work, I argue that Jesus's particularity as a Jewish male human is essential for developing Christian theology about non-human animals. The Gospel of John says that the word became flesh, not that the word became human. By using flesh, John's gospel connects the incarnation to the Jewish notion of all animals. The gospel almost always uses flesh in a wider sense than meaning human. The bread of life discourse makes this explicit when Jesus compares his flesh to meat, offending his hearers because they see themselves as above other animals. Other animals are killable and consumable, not humans. The notion that the word became flesh has gained prominence in eco-theology, particularly in theologians identifying, hear the statement, identifying with deep incarnation. And so again, we're doing weird things with words and we're starting to approach words like real estate. And we think we can just, you know, secure plots of land and once you own it, you get to determine the use of it. And so there's a group of people who say, well, we are in the camp where we adhere to deep incarnation, implying that anyone who doesn't agree with this train of thought uh, isn't thinking as deep as they are. That's kind of the subtle dig with the title. It says, early theologians spoke of the word becoming matter, yet they ignored Jesus's Jewishness and rarely focused on his animality, preferring instead to focus on cosmic elements. Consequently, they often devalued animal life. Jesus's Jewishness is essential to the incarnation. Lean in with me. His Jewishness entailed a vision of creation's purpose in which creatures do not consume one another, but they live peacefully by eating plants. The Jewish milieu also entails a grand vision for transformation where predators act peacefully with their prey. Jesus's maleness, this is pretty big what he says here, is also connected to his Jewishness. In the Greco-Roman context, the same Greco-Roman context that John was writing his letter to, in the Greco-Roman context in which he lived, his circumcision marked him as less male and more animal-like. Moreover, Jesus' Jewish heritage rejected the idea of a masculine hunter. His theological body was far more transgendered and connected to animality than the Roman ideal. Finally, Jesus' humanity entails a kenosis of what it means to be human. By becoming animal, he stops the anthropological machine that divides humans from animals. We see this becoming animal most clearly in his identity as a lamb, but also in Revelation's idea that he is both a lion and a lamb. He goes on to say his eschatological body fulfills the Jewish vision of a creation-wide peace. 
And again, this has to be the most boringest sermon you've ever heard in your life. I'm sitting up here reading a dissertation to you. But the reason why I'm doing so is I read this stuff and I think to myself, oh my goodness, I pastor people who would read this and take it hook, line, and sinker. They would read it and be like, eh, that makes sense. And folks, with all due respect, it doesn't. For a couple reasons. One, he, he says, hey, Jesus' metaphor of the lion and the lamb, to take such extreme liberties to say, hey, this is Jesus identifying as an animal is, is pretty extreme. And it also overlooks all the other uses of metaphors that Jesus uses. His, his argument breaks down pretty quickly. In fact, he even cites one of them in his abstract. He says, Jesus once referred to himself as the bread of life. Well, folks, when you and I enter heaven, we're not gonna approach a table and find Jesus as a loaf of bread. <laughs> he also called himself the living water. And you're not gonna enter the pearly gates and walk up onto a pond and think, I didn't expect this. <laughs> and again, this stuff, when you say it out loud, it's hard not to chuckle but this is the predominant conversation in our culture. And we are taking such extreme liberties, trying to redefine very fundamental things. And folks, I, I say this with gentleness because we all know people and we all have people in our lives, myself included, who uh, are in these different spectrums. But there is a significant gap, a chasm between a young boy's circumcision and an individual's gender transition. To say that those two are the same things is, is, is a reach. But some are seeking to redefine Jesus, and that's problematic. Some are revisiting Jesus, which is, the thing I'm encouraged by. Some of you, you're, you're not a Christian, but you're exhausted with the confusion. You're exhausted with the chaos. You're living in a world where you're raising kids and you're having conversations. You're like, oh my goodness, how do I navigate any of this? How do I make sense of this? And you're showing up revisiting. Is there anything in this Jesus that could help me in the life that I'm living? And I'm so glad that you're here and maybe just maybe you'll discover the truth and the validity of Christ. While others of you are focused on remaining in Christ. And I just wanna say, well done. Don't throw in the towel, remain faithful, stay to the course because the next generation, they depend on our faithfulness. They depend on our commitment to our beliefs. And again, it's recognizing this idea of grace and truth. And so to tie a bow on it, truth without grace, it's heartless, it's friendless, it's condemning, it leads to rebellion. Grace without truth, it's spineless, it's functionless, it's confusing, and it leads to relativism. But grace and truth, it's priceless. Oh my goodness, how do you value such contribution to the world? It's fearless, 
I mean, this takes some courage if you're gonna live full of grace and full of truth. It's also convincing. That's what makes Jesus like, man, that actually makes sense. That not only speaks to my head, it speaks to my heart. It convinces me. And lastly, it leads to revelation. That's what Paul, that's what John is saying. He's like, we seen his glory. Like he wasn't trying to hide from us. This God is knowable. He reveals himself to us through the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the son of God in human flesh and humanity. He opens our eyes to that's what God is like. He's full of grace. He's full of truth, meaning he's masterful. He he doesn't side one way or the other. He's figured out a way to master both. In addition to that, he's meaningful. This God comes with logic and reasoning and purpose and meaning. But in addition to that, he's merciful. This grace is sufficient for every single one of us. And my prayer is that you would make room for Christ this Christmas season because those who don't make room for Christ, folks, they make room for chaos. And again, I just pray that we can be a community that says, man, let's trust God. Let's rely on his word and let's be students and lean into conversations that matter. Amen.